Hello again and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and it is delightful to have you back here today with us. And who am I interviewing today? Well, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain and lots more with Derek Henneke, who is a biotech and CMO entrepreneur and board member. Man, have I got a good guest for you today. Uh, Derek came recommended by Mark Bamforth, who's on been on the podcast recently. I'm sure you've enjoyed his two-part episode. And Derek has been, uh, to an extent, a partner in crime with Mark in some of his investments, uh, but also brings a wealth of different experience that he shares with us on today's interview. Derek is a biotech entrepreneur and chairman of various boards, including Microsize and Particle Dynamics. With over three decades of experience in the CDMO industry and a 2022 master's degree from Harvard in the Inceptor Bio Lab, he has developed a deep understanding of pharma development and manufacturing. And as a partner at Kinetico's Ventures, he invests in biotech companies that are pushing the boundaries of what's possible in oncology through technologies like gene editing, mRNA, and CAR-T. So one interesting thing about Derek is he had quite a corporate background, actually. He bounced across uh, different continents, and Derek starts the story by talking about some of the, I suppose, varying locations uh, that he that he worked in, which is, which is super interesting. He then goes on to talk about um, the story of uh, acquiring, growing, and ultimately selling Excellence to Capsigel, which at the time I remember was quite a significant deal because Capsigel were snapping up some key technologies. So I really like how we get into, I suppose, his personal life and what it meant to start that company and carve it out of its existing business, uh, and then ultimately go on to sell the business. Plus, uh, he talks about what it was like leaving that business once that deal was done. We get into then a, a bit of a conversation about carve outs and you know I've seen my fair share of carve outs in terms of uh, big companies where big CDMOs buy say manufacturing facilities from big pharma companies but Derek's at the other end of the scale where he's bought out really kind of uh, differentiating capabilities that he feels have got bags of potential so that's a, a really different perspective that we've ever had on the podcast. We, we talk at quite a lot of length about investments and how he thinks about investments, which, and Derek's had an interesting, I suppose, take on this because he's been, or he is both a VC and a PE investor. So he talks about the difference between the two, how this has, has evolved and how he now thinks about investments today versus say 10 years ago. And towards the back end of the podcast, we talk about trends and where the kind of uh, market is going and why Derek's not seeing much of a slowdown across his portfolio companies, but there could be a lag. Beyond that as well, he talks about some other areas, which I think you'll find really, really interesting. Particularly, I I took a lot from the different growth levers that they used at Excellence to grow that business to over 250 people. Uh, which is a fantastic story to hear out for. As always, thank you for being here with us to hear the latest story uh, and insight that we're bringing to your ears today. Uh, if you like today's episode, please share it with a colleague and or leave a rating on the podcast. 
uh, app that you're listening to today's show. Thanks always to my team for pulling together the podcast. And if you haven't already, please pick up a copy of my wonderful book, The Floundering Founder, which is uh, currently at a 4.8 star rating on Amazon across the UK and the US, which is pretty good and should tell you that it might be helpful. So please enjoy today's episode. Hey, Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Raymond. It's a very uh, great pleasure to be able to talk to you today. The pleasure is mine because um, I've enjoyed looking at your backstory and, uh, you know, and just, I suppose, six degrees of separation. I can't believe we'd not met <laughs> in life previously, given your background. Um, please talk us through your kind of career story in terms of uh, how you've developed your career since, since you know, you left school time to where you are today, because it's been a, a really interesting story and uh, I'd love you to kind of bring it to life for our listener. Oh, thanks, Ramon. It goes far back. I'm uh, Originally, people could probably tell from my accent, uh, I started in Canada. We started working for a German company, uh, going door to door, lab to lab, selling restriction enzymes and molecular biology reagents for a German company. Um, my wife and I decided to move to Europe and I started a career with a Dutch biotech company called Hispercatus. Uh, which was later uh, bought by DSM in 98. Uh, being the, probably the only non-Dutch uh, employee in the management uh, at Hispercatus, when they started to expand, they asked for volunteers to, uh, to go to Mexico or to go to Egypt and places, and I always put up my hand. So <laughs> I thought, this, this is a great opportunity for, for growth. And so uh, that volunteering nature got me into some some interesting assignments. I moved to Mexico for, uh, for a fermentation facility there, and then uh, almost almost ended up in India for uh, for an assignment, and then back to the Netherlands to look after uh, their non-penicillin projects. Uh, in Egypt, as an operations manager, to run the site there for three and a half years, um, just missing 9-11 to, uh, to come to Canada to run a biologics facility. After that, I made a jump over to, uh, to a, a Canadian company called MDS Pharma Services, which no longer exists. Uh, they, they had me running three operations in Tampa, Montreal, and in Seattle. Out of the frying pan into the fire, I, I, <laughs> within a year of that, my boss came to me and said, we're going to sell all three of your units. And I said, oh, it's too early. We're just about to turn the place around. Uh, and I went home and spoke to my wife and, and a couple of other friends. And they said, why don't you, why don't you buy the place? And I said, well, you know, we'll buy it. Where am I going to get the money to buy it? But we, uh, we arranged the financing. I bought the, uh, the TAPA facility uh, to do, start doing formulation development. Grew that up uh, into a good size operation to be able to sell it to Capsigel in 2016. Since then, I've had the opportunity to, to, uh, to be fortunate enough to, to choose the people I work with and uh, invested in a number of pharma services companies and, and biotechs. I'm going to get to the investments that you've made, but I want to rewind back to some of the key milestones. I love I love people like you, Derek, who are just unbelievably humble about an incredible career path and kind of skip quite quickly over incredible achievements. So um, talk us through uh, the conversation with your wife. You mentioned your wife a couple of times at the dinner table when you're like, I'm going to raise some money and, and effectively become a founder or, or buy this business, which obviously was a, and we'll come on to talk about how that business ended up being sold, but what was your wife's take on it? How were you feeling at the time, given you you clearly had a great corporate experience at that time? And I, I suspect that there were lots of employment opportunities for you to go to in leadership teams, but you took the decision to to do your own thing. 
Uh, I think it is about having support and the support starts at home and who your, who your partner is um, and also your friends to be able to give you the courage to do that and the, and, and the time and the, and the reorganization of your life to, to do an entrepreneurial effort like this. I remember coming home and I was, I was kind of depressed. I'd been in Montreal and my boss told me this and, he, and I said, instantly you know that you're not going to be able to, to stay in the bigger company after only being in a, in a corporate environment for, for a year. So I wasn't looking forward to the conversation, but immediately over the, over the dinner table, I had, we had three kids. Um, let's say that was 2004, so my oldest would have been nine years old, <laughs> and then all the way down to, to a four-year-old uh, daughter, all daughters. Uh, and so, but it was instantly, he said, well, what could we do to pull this together? And, um, and it, was, it, it, is, it did involve some uh, very innovative financial engineering, <laughs> personally. <laughs> But the biggest part was we were able to do a sale and lease back of the operation, basically taking all the land and building and then selling it to a landlord and taking those proceeds and then, you know, swinging them back to the, the company we were buying from. But my wife was incredibly uh, supportive and, and she remains to be. Uh, everybody remembers the recession in 2009, 2010, and that was just a, a terrible, terrible time for our market. But we were right, right there together. That's amazing. It's good to hear that kind of support that you've had, which has enabled you to have a, a very successful career. And the other thing you mentioned, which I, I'd, I'd made a note of, was just the, I'd written Canada, Germany, the Netherlands, Egypt, the US. You seem to like traveling. And even in the time that we've chatted in the last few weeks, you all seem to be on a flight somewhere. Is that love for travel and exploration of the world? Has that always been just part of who you are or just something that developed over time? Absolutely. My father was in the Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, we moved every two years, three years to different places, mostly between Germany and Canada. Uh, so we, we had a lot of travel. I think that gave the, the wonderlust. The world is really big out there. And, and you know, I, I think it's still the same now. The, the more you travel, the more you see uh, different ways of doing things and different solutions. So tell us the story of the business um, that you, you ended up selling to Capsigel. Um, talk us through the growth and the scale up and, and the lessons that you learned uh, along the way. Thanks, uh, Ramon. There have been many uh, right out of the gate. We didn't know what we would be like as an independent car vote from the mother company. So we were very cautious at the beginning in 2006, uh, but that was one of our best years. Just the, the freedom everybody had knowing that we were now on our own. Uh, we didn't have allocation, corporate stuff to deal with. We didn't have all those meetings. We could do the, the, the core mission of delivering to our customers. And so that was, that was three years of really powerful growth and a lot of cash came in. Uh, then we said, well, let's, let's double down. Let's put all this cash. We never took any dividends uh, or paid out a lot. We, um, uh, we, we bought new facilities. Uh, I think it was 2009 and then the recession hit. And then I realized quickly things can quickly disappear. And that was for the, for the new people in this industry, that was a, a time when the phone didn't ring. Basically, you could there and do whatever you wanted, but there were no projects coming in. And if the phone rang, it was for a customer to say, look, we got to cancel our project. We have no more cash coming in. And, um, and so we, we, we didn't let anybody go. Uh, so that was a, we thought the recession would be very short-lived. And meanwhile, all of our competitors started to disappear. And when the recession finally ended, we were one of the last ones standing with a lot of capacity. <laughs> And, uh, and that created the next spurt of growth. I think there were a couple of innovations we had. We, we realized that there was some 
very specialized equipment out there with no service providers of that equipment. One of them was a Capsigel piece of machine called an Accela Dose. Uh, it's not related to the name of Accelience, but, but coincidental. We, we really pushed that one through and became the service provider of that equipment and ended up having about four of those machines which was a great fit because our, our customers, some of them were, were very small and not able to, uh, to pay for one of the machines themselves. Another innovation was the need to go into Europe and have clinical trial supplies uh, integrating that. I think that there, was, there were very few companies at the time doing it, certainly not of my size. So we started that and then we, uh, we expanded into the UK and had a just-in-time labeling operation for that. Uh, so that was a great innovation as well. And the last one we just started, third and the next wave was to add micronization to our, our capabilities. We were mostly a, a uh, fill in, filling operation to fill into capsules and tableting in, in, uh, in Tampa, but adding micronization was a, was a great addition. And as you know, then 2016 came and we were, we were given a, a, a nice opportunity by Capsigel to, uh, to become part of, of that that company. So we didn't really get to mobilize on that micronization opportunity at that time. How did you um, think about focusing on those particular capabilities at the time? Um, you, you strike me as the business had been quite focused on a, a core set of capabilities that I suspect differentiated you and and made you attractive to Capsigel. Was that a conscious thing on your behalf that you wanted to be seen as a real specialist in your your area? Yes, you have to differentiate yourself. It's like the you know Seth Godin's uh, purple cow type of thing that goes back, but you have to be different. You got to ra- rise above the noise level. Prospects are not out there looking all the time for a provider, so you have to you have to be a little bit different. And and as soon as you come in with an innovation, if it is successful, there'll be imitators, and so you have to come up with the next one. And the only way to do that is a combination of technology and customers. Meaning you have to be listening to the technology point. But 50-50, you have to also be listening to the customers. If you listen too much to the customers, you'll, you won't come up with the new ideas. But if you're only on the technology side, you'll be, could be wasting a lot of money on things that don't land. So it, it was going to a lot of conventions and, and, and just externally focused all the time. We had good internal people, and I was mostly on the road all the time uh, meeting with, with technology providers or uh, suppliers, customers trying to put pieces together. And what type of scale in terms of amount of people, facilities, were you at the point of, of selling the business? Yeah, we started at uh, 40 people in 2006, and then we grew to about 250, 270 by the time we sold to Cats Jill in, in 2016. And I'm going to come on to talk about the companies that you invest in, because one of my observations were all the companies you seem to have a role in are around under 250 people, which kind of makes sense now because I was going to ask why you focus on that scale, but I think I know the answer now. But what I'd encourage is is think about um, uh, look at, looking online for an article that Derek wrote, which is called, uh, you know, Why I Sold. Uh, and is it Excellence? Is that the way to pronounce it? I, I wasn't sure how to, how to pronounce it, but the, the non-linear path of decision-making drug uh, in, drug de- de- in drug development and delivery publication online. And there's a quote in there, which I absolutely uh, love, which I'm going to read, which is, uh, we've had six solid years of market expansion as an industry 
what would the future hold? I remain optimistic, but realistic. Nothing lasts forever. What if I am forced to sell to a buyer that doesn't know my business? I would be relinquishing managerial control to people who don't know my business like I do and may not want to run it like I do. <laughs> so I wanted to applaud you for, I suppose, the authenticity and honesty of, uh, I suppose, as a founder in that situation, having been in a situation my, myself. So what was it about Capsagel and the timing that made you think, okay, this is the right time for me and and I want to go back to your conversation with your wife, <laughs> you know, years later around the dinner table. Talk us through how that conversation went. You're like, honey, we've got an offer that might change our life is what I'm guessing, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Yeah, that Gel is fantastic. They, right from the top, I, I probably by that time knew about 50 or 60 people inside of Gel, and, uh, and they were all good people. Uh, they, just every one of them was, was honest and earnest and, and built a good business coming out as their own car boat from Pfizer. Uh, you know, it's with the same CEO, uh, Guido Dreesen, and he met me and we, we hit it off and, and all the way through the whole management, I knew that they would look after Excellence. So that was one part. Um, I think that the, it's funny, you know, I think as soon as we sold, we had Brexit and, uh, we had, had nobody saw that coming. Right. And, and yet I had this UK operation and as a small company under two, you know, 300 people, what would my customers ask? of me said, how is it going to go with Brexit? Nobody knew what was going to happen, but it's certainly a lot easier to be part of a big company than it is to be a small company. You know, nobody knows. Capsigel didn't know either, but at least there's more stability there in, in those crises. So I'd certainly sold at the right time and it landed well, and our clients were well looked after and the employees were, were very well looked after. So it, it, it looked like, you know, it, it, I couldn't have picked a better time. Um, to the second point you asked about how it went back home, I think we, we came home and, and my wife had certainly, and I would have that struggle in 2010 and maybe things come back every six or seven years, who knows, but but we weren't ready to go through that again. Uh, if, you, if you hit another recession, you're out for another 10 years. So that was good. And, and then a, this time I had a, a strong management team in 2016, or sorry, 2015 when the offer came. And I went to the management team. Said, we're not going to sell. This is, we got this offer. We're not going to sell. And they all said, "We better sell." Makes <laughs> <laughs> you the vote of confidence, guys. <laughs> and what was their what was their reasoning behind that? Their rationale for thinking this is a good time? I think they saw that we were going to go commercial. Actually, we had a, a couple of projects. Now at this stage, we were headed into late phase three uh, development for a few clients, and we had to the uh, the push into getting a. A pre-approval inspection from the FDA, FDA, and that was going well. But you go do a lot of mock audits, and you start getting, you know, higher stress tests, and thinking, boy, we need, we could, you know, we need to up our game a lot. Uh, I think that was one part of it, and then, um, and then I think that was that was it. They weren't tired; they stayed on, and we we continued on with the with the new management, the new structure. I think we all just realized that everybody, every manager has their their. Their limit in size. You asked before, Raman, about my my wanting to pick companies that are under 300 uh, because that's where I'm comfortable at. I, I think there you can make a difference. You get to know uh, enough of the decisions. Above that, it starts to get more into a little bit too much on the KPIs and and less on the entrepreneurial part, I'd say. But everybody has their own strengths, so, and maybe I can grow to a thousand. But uh, I, I just think that that's that's something that I I know I can contribute in the boards and with the management team. So that was also the decision-making at Excellence. If we were to go from 250 to 500, 
what would that path look like? It might mean completely different management team. And before I, I mean, that's a nice segue into talking about the portfolio companies and the various boards that you sit on at the minute, uh, which is my kind of next next area of focus. Before I do that, how long did you stay within Capture Gel? And obviously, at some point, you left that business. And curious to hear how how you felt at that point. You know, was there a bit of a come down? Were you elated? You know, I, I've. I've had the time. The, the for, you know, fortunately, I've met lots of entrepreneurs that have sold their businesses, and there is a real mix of what happens to them after that point. Um, I remember one guy always telling me, "There's only so many games of golf you can play, <laughs> <laughs> which um, and only fancy meals that you can have where your friends are all at work." But I'm interested to know what your experience was like. I suppose after the, after you left uh, after you left Capstone. Yeah, I stayed on from the uh, the purchase date for a year and a half and uh, certainly wanted to stay on longer. But once you've run your own place, it's hard to be a, a, a general manager. And that's what, that's a common theme. It's you're used to running your own things and doing things your own way. And it's it's just hard. And, and it, it's no reflection on, on the company that bought you. It's just going to be different. So that job changed quite a bit. And, and I said, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? And and as you said, I'm not. I don't play golf. Uh, at that time, I was probably about 50 years old. So there's a there's a, nowadays there's a good 20 years left of you at least uh, after that. So knew I was going to do something else, and uh, took it took about two months off, and and, and thought, no, let's let's get back in and and help other companies. So <laughs> now there was nothing nothing really dramatic about it. I think it was just mutual, and and it was a great parting. Uh, Guido and I sat down and. Another person who was, who was my direct supervisor, uh, Avit Patel, who I work with now on a couple of projects, he, uh, he and I was sat down and, and came to a, a, common, a common agreement to just, just leave and stay in touch. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You're investing in lots of companies you serve on, on lots of boards. I appreciate you might not be able to share all of the businesses that you are involved in, but can you give our listener a bit of a flavor for the types of companies that are within your portfolio and then your role within that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So some drama that did happen is we were able to buy back one of the companies we had sold to Capsigel in uh, May 2022. So the micronization facility in uh, Quakertown, Pennsylvania uh, was was. You know, maybe not the right fit inside of a Lonza, Lonza in, in uh, 20, I think 2018, 2017, bought uh, Capsigel. So they came back to me and asked if I wanted to buy it back. And I reached out to the original founder and, and he was ecstatic about it. TJ Igley is a, is a, is a, is a very enthusiastic uh, CEO of Microsoft. So that is just a, you know, a heartfelt love to start the things we tried to start in 2015, but weren't able to. So that's one. Uh, recently, I've uh, become the, the CEO of a, of a pharmaceutical egg producer that produces uh, SPF eggs. That's called AVS Bio. That was a carbo from Charles River uh, in December. And that's really exciting. Great management team and uh, now freed up as a carboat. I love carboats. So that is a management team that's now freed up to, to pursue their mission. Uh, I went back to uh, to Harvard to to get my immunology degree and uh, on the board of Inceptor Bio, which is leading the 
development of a new COSTIM dom, uh, domain for a CAR-T and CAR-M program. So uh, with, uh, with uh, some very good old friends, this is an example where you get to, you know, at, at 55 plus you, if you've done things right, you get to choose the people you work with. So I get to <laughs> work with uh, people like Mark Bamforth and uh, Selesh Manji and, and, uh, and Nigel Walker and people. So it's, it's fun that way. Get to, get to do that. Um, and then going on, there's Everest Bio, which is a, a, a stats programming, uh, contract manufacturing, contract research organization in, uh, in the Northeast, uh, Grand River Aseptic Manufacturing, which does still in, uh, sterile fill and finish, and uh, an older operation, uh, Particle Dynamics, I've been, on, been involved with since 2010. So those are, the, those are the ones. So it does sound like a lot, but what I do on them is, is, is do a lot of synergies between the companies. There's common themes, common problems, and common solutions. And it, sometimes one company will discover the solution and I'll instantly think, oh, that'll be the solution for this other company. And, and I like doing that. You said you love carve-outs. Right. What is it about carve-outs that excite you? Because I've seen carve-outs go horribly wrong. You know, often um, if, say, and I've also seen them go, go well, actually, but for example, if, say, a big pharma company sells a facility and I appreciate that's a bigger scale often than what you're talking about, but nevertheless, a similar dynamic where you end up with a business that is hard to turn around from a culture, method, and mentality perspective. So just interesting to hear some of the reasons that they work for you. Right. If they're to stress sales, I think that would be hard because there the employees have been demoralized. Uh, there could have been uh, you know, management, management reasons why they're turnarounds and that I agree with you. They're, they can be tough. They're, they're where you're really dipping into your own pockets again to come up with operational expense money to, to cover the shortfalls. And, and that can be tough too, because then you're saying, well, when do we turn this around? It's not around. It didn't turn around this month. How about next month? Or how about, and then the pressure starts. So that, that is probably less interesting. I think the ones that are exciting are where you, you meet the management and they say, and you ask them, what would you do if you had an extra $20 million? And they go, 20 million. We've never even had 2 million. <laughs> and then they go absolutely crazy and you can't, you can't turn them off. <laughs> and that's the case with, uh, Excellence, with Microsize, with AVS Bio, uh, that you, you just get the ideas flowing and, and you have to, it, 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 there's a tool I used uh, back in Egypt when I moved to Egypt and they were going to shut down the place because it, you know, it wasn't the center of pharmaceutical production. But we had to use a gigantic whiteboard to put down all the ideas that came up from the management. And it's just the joy of, of that. And you have to prioritize them and put them in structure and things. But um, that's, that's the part that I think is, is invigorating and gives me a lot of energy. No, I can see that. And I think given your experience here, you're obviously very well suited to that type of thing as well, which I, I suspect for the founders and entrepreneurs running running these businesses, having someone like you alongside them is is great as a mentor, uh, no doubt about that. Um, how do you think about investments now, you know, today? And I suppose a second part of that question, you say you've rewind back five or six years ago when maybe we first started investing in, in businesses in the space and now where you've got several investments, has your way of thinking about should I invest in a business changed in the last five or six years? It has a lot. I think that when I started, it was, you know, you dip your toes in, be passive investing and, and diversification. 
So, you know, having 20, you know, little bits in 20 companies. And I think for the last three years, for sure, it's been much more active investing. It's like, I, I think it's called, you know, smart money. I think that's kind of a, a pompous way to put it, but you, you want to put money in place where you can make a difference and not just with your money, but also with, with your time and connections and experience. So now I'm really not interested in putting into a, into a fund or into, into someone else, even if that other person is, is a, is a known entity, uh, a known character, known, a, a known entrepreneur. I'd much rather put money into into businesses where I can help out a little bit. So I, I think that's a major change. And then and then also trying to to stay uh, stay in areas which which I see synergies with other businesses too. So uh, the companies I'm on, I can see areas where companies can these these companies can help each other. And you mentioned synergies and problems before as well. So if as you, I suppose it's a slightly more market looking question here as you look at your portfolio companies as we stand here today you know back end of of quarter one in in 23 what are the are you seeing similar challenges across all the business i don't necessarily mean operationally you know like you know everyone has people problems everyone has you know everyone wants more business all that kind of stuff is is it are you seeing uh, a market shift or anything that is all of the portfolio companies that you're involved with are off feeling the pinch or anything like that, or the the flip side, which is they're all seeing growth because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that's interesting because we're coming into this uh, as we speak today. You know, SVB is 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 an issue up today. Who knows what happens when you, this podcast posts? But uh, I, that just is a recent example where everybody was very panicked on Wednesday. Uh, the first thing was all the companies said we don't bank with SVB. Okay, well, what about customers of our of our of our companies? Do they bank with SVB? And then following that and then sharing that information of what companies are doing and how they're responding. Uh, there's really, it, it, the tempo seems to go much faster. It, it was even like in December, it was about, you know, biofarm funding. That's okay. Seems like there are very few cancellations and, and there's enough business to backfill for those possible cancellations. Then it was, uh, you know, you know, you know, what happens in, uh, with SVB and what happens next week. So the, the pace of changes is happening much quicker and feeding that information back to, to the uh, CEOs and the boards of the other companies is interesting, is a, is a, is a dynamic. But today, I think, today, today, uh, Tuesday, uh, 10.42 a.m. Eastern time, <laughs> SVB seems to be in the, in the, in the taillights, so in the, in, the, in the back. So we're uh, don't we're we're going to go to DCAT next week? So these uh, these conferences also seem to be uh, uh, you know echo chambers sometimes, uh, and but I don't see any panic right now. I think that things are these are looking pretty good, especially when you get to meet me at DCAT as well in person. That's got to be a highlight of <laughs> something to to look forward to. Thank you for that. And when you and I first met, we got into a really interesting conversation about uh, VC versus PE and. Just through my own education of the last few years, I've definitely educated, you know, I, I'd probably five years ago used to use those terms interchangeably and having been through a PE process now and actually invested in businesses that I would class at more of a VC stage, I have a better understanding. But given your history of experience in, in I suppose, investing in companies that are that, that kind of pre-revenue VC phase versus a kind of growth path at a PE, give... Give our listener a bit of a 
an overview of how you look at the two and differentiate the two? Uh, and does one float your boat more than the other? I'm guessing the VC stuff is high risk right. for you, but um, I'd love you to just talk about the kind of differences in your experience of both. Yeah, sorry, my origin story is on the private equity side. So I'm moving more to the VC side and maybe that's the way it goes in the future, but they are very different. And I start with the PE side. There are three, at least three criteria that are critical for PE, that their their mandates from their limited partners is such that it has to be, they have to be generated, the, the, the companies they invest in have to be generating revenue. Uh, there has to be limited concentration risk. And most importantly of all, there have to have an EBITDA positive. And if they don't have those three criteria, the discussion is pretty short. Then individual PEs have certain check sizes they write, and there's a minimum check size that they'll write, which is the amount of money that comes out of the fund, independent of any debt financing they do. And that's a that's a, uh, another bar that has to be met by a, by a private equity. Uh, the VC side, and I'm still learning this uh, for the last three, four years, is much more technology-focused, uh, science-focused, um, and and related to that because it's high risk, as you said, Raman, it's about optionality. You know, this program might fail, so what is our plan B, our plan C? And as uh, Celeste says, is that we have to have a plan E, F, and G. <laughs> so it's really, you know, focus on number one, number two, but always have these things in the background. And if you tried to do that in a board of a private equity driven one, it'd be it would be that's nice, but what's wrong with plan A and plan B? You know, it's it would be be a, an odd discussion. So there are mixes, but there are very few between the two. I love that. I think there's some really, I think even just the way you describe it, I think it'll be helpful for people that have always struggled with with thinking about not the difference, but the way you think as an investor between the two. And I think that therein lies a, a really interesting kind of difference. And from an M&A perspective, as you look at the market today, uh, and you think about the amount of activity happening in the market versus, I say some of the the mega, uh, you know, mentioned Mark, but you know, Mark Bamford, who's been a guest on the podcast, is a good friend of yours, who's obviously been involved in a few big transactions in the sector. What's your view of the M and A space right now? You know, where we are today, and do you see it slowing down as a consequence of of the macro issues that we've got going on? Yeah, I see a lot uh, working with the private equities and and these connections and and being on these boards with private equity behind them too. So I see a, a lot of uh, opportunities, uh, confidential information, memorandums, you know, are emailed to me a lot. It is quiet. So it is quiet this quarter and last quarter compared to the last five years. And nobody really has a good explanation for that. Certainly people can point to the, the troubles in biofarm funding, but it, it probably is just a COVID overhang that comparables between you know, this quarter, 23, versus the same quarter last year, the year before, might be less. So, you know, maybe their companies are being a little quiet and not coming on the market until until they get past that comparables. They like to share and show, you know, this year versus last year. And of course, in, during COVID, all the companies were doing very well. So that, that could be one reason. But it is it is interesting that we're, there'll probably be, by the end of this year, a lot of companies coming to market. As an investor, is that good for you or is that bad for you? Because part of me thinks that that's, you're thinking, well, where else do I park some cash? But on the other side, you may be thinking, well, actually, there could be some bargains <laughs> out there. Yeah, it's. Um, I always think that there's going to be bargains, but uh, it's a pretty sophisticated market. So, and and founders have a certain number in their head. They say, I'm not going to sell this place until it gets to X. 
you know, whatever. So there's a thing maybe that gets some founders up in the morning to say, you know, I promised uh, my employees, my management that we're going to get to you know, X. And if the market's down, they'll just hold on. You know, their, their business, they're still doing pretty well, right? So there are very few cancellations of their programs. So they'll just hold on. So there are no real bargains. You know, it takes, it takes demand and also supply and there's just no supply right now. Yeah. So I don't think there's any real bargains going out there. There are bargains. There's a reason why they're probably why, bargains. Why they're bargains? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm, I'm fairly recently, I went into a, a shop with one, and my, one of my kids were like, "Wow, these chips are you know ten ten p or whatever it was," and I was <laughs> like, eh, "You might want to check this out by day." You mentioned the biotech slowdown, and uh, well, the, not those words, but this was a, the the impact of the capital markets and the, the previous interviews actually I've had in the, the last week that'll be coming out probably. Getting the biotech perspective of how difficult it is to be a biotech company right now, especially if they're burning through cash. As you look across your portfolio companies, are you seeing any kind of slowdown in the manner in which companies are outsourcing? Or are you actually seeing more outsourcing because they don't want to burden themselves with more more overhead and fixed cost? I'm not seeing a slowdown yet. And that could be a lagging factor, right? It could be that cancellations come after the funding dries up. Uh, so we're we're careful, but that sort of speaks to the experience that most people have, like myself, from 2010, that we're, we knew that happened, so we're careful this time, maybe. You know, this, it's like that thing is, this time is different. <laughs> maybe, it, uh, maybe it isn't different. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's, it's, it is going to be an unusual situation, but don't see any real cancellations yet. Um, I think the portfolio companies are, are you know, holding on to cash, making sure that they don't expand. So a general contraction, making sure that we're ready in case that does happen. Um, one thing I do see from one one company is that in 2010, all the portfolio, all the customers, they stopped outsourcing and they pulled in their cash and didn't outsource. This time, it seems like they're rushing to their milestones to make sure that they hit them so they can go raise more money again. That's what I'm hearing from some of my, some of my customers. It, it, it echoes actually one of the interviews that I did uh, previous to, to yours, Derek, and actually similar type thing that actually reaching those inflection points and milestones is absolutely, I mean, it's always been critical, but it's probably more critical now in terms of that data revalidation to access more cash. Uh, and obviously the outsourcing space can play a role in helping a biotech company get to those inflection points quickly. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that you're you're hearing the same type of thing. One thing I read about you, which I, um, you, you have a line in your LinkedIn profile that says, um, join me and be part of the biotech revolution, which I think is really interesting. What does that, what does that mean to you? And are you on, I mean, you've used the word revolution. Is, is that specific to something or is it, could it equally be evolution where things are just iteratively improving in our space? I'd love you just to talk about it because it's such an interesting almost um, manifesto or phrase that you've got kind of proudly out there on your on your LinkedIn profiles. It is. And the first part of that sentence is join me because we are in a dearth of talent always. Uh, right now, the, we don't have enough people coming into the States uh, like we did back in the, in the 2000s um, of this of level of uh, be able to work in biotech. So anything a company can do to bring in human resources is more critical now than it ever was. And and the rate of change in biotech is such that it, people have to be current, have to stay current. It is a revolution. The COVID, COVID 
brought mRNA and now we have you know CAR T and cell therapies and and things and they're that is revolutionary. The things we're doing at Inceptor Bio to to cure cancer. We worked for 20, 30 years on small molecules. There'll always be small molecules, uh, but I think it is a revolution. And and the ability to scale that up is a challenge for uh, for contract development manufacturing. I just saw an article that says the amount of MABs and the kilos of MABs needed for for neuro um, uh, neurodegenerative diseases like ALS and Alzheimer's is in the kilos size. So where is that where is that going to come from? So there are there are some big changes, and I don't think that's really evolutionary. It's it is it is revolutionary. We could talk for another hour about AI and how that's do. <laughs> I was yeah. just I was just about to say I'm sure we could talk all day. But you, you mentioned the way that you phrase with your the companies you invest in. Hey, if you had twenty million dollars, what would you do with it? I suppose a similar question to you, which is you know if there was if there was one thing you could change about the sector that we operate in, what what would that be? I think it would be. Boy, this is going to be. This is not going to give me any any friends. But I think the sophistication of our customers sometimes or prospects. Going back to the last thing, a lot of new people come in, and it is about due diligence on the customers, on the suppliers you pick. It, it, it frustrates me that we don't. There are a lot. There are. It, it, we don't have a lot of really great companies in this in this field, and the net promoter scale of our industry is very low. You know the. So where does this start from? It starts from us as providers. Are we not doing well enough, or is it the customers not demanding enough? And. I don't know where it is. I've been in this for thirty some years now, and I still struggle with uh, with one thing. I would like to do is is improve the the performance level of of this whole industry. Man, that's a great that's a great ambition to have, and I suspect that through your portfolio companies, you are you know lifting the tide to help companies and and raise the bar, which in in theory should should help everyone. And um, so. As a final question, really, what do, what are the next few years look like for Derek? You know, you've got several investments and sitting on several boards. Um, I've attempted to start another company again. I appreciate you you are playing CEO. I laughed when we first met. And he said, "I'm a part time CEO," and I was like, "I don't think such a thing exists." <laughs> um, like, do you ever get the itch to to or to you know to to start something again or do another carve out where you're running the show or are you, are you now very much settled into this more chairman, not in non-exec type uh, role that you're in today? Goodness, no, I don't think so. I think it is a really hard job to be a CEO. I don't envy the the CEOs of our companies and dealing with boards and dealing with employees and also dealing with the customers. It is a, uh, you know, it is a all-consuming, all enveloping you get if you have 250 people you have 250 problems if you have uh, you know 300 customers or 200 customers every night they can call you and and have a direct line to you no matter how you're organized you're you know you're the man you're the you're the lady you have you're the person where you know the day doesn't end and uh, I think I had a great experience as CEO and I really enjoy working with AVS bio as, as CEO for now but uh, but it is it is not in my future. I really enjoy working with these companies and seeing them grow and and nurturing the CEOs of our, of our portfolio companies. So who knows? Like I said, at the beginning of the interview, we have another 20 years ahead of me. So who knows what happens? But uh, at least for the time being, I'm very happy. Happy what you do, <laughs> which I thought might be your answer. Derek, we're, at, we're almost at the end of, of the interview and uh, I was really excited to, to interview you and bring your story uh, to our listeners. Do you have any final comments or requests for our, for our audience? 
Oh, this has been fun. Uh, really, you know, you're, you're part of the the uh, success of being able to choose the people we get to work with, and I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing you on Sunday in New York. So, uh, thank you very much for this opportunity, and look forward to learning more. You too, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, uh, Molecule to Market Pod, or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.